0: danny danny thank you so much for having me back and it's a joy to be back and i believe you put a good spell uh on the journey of voice Waller's universe about two years ago and um i've never ever forgotten uh how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um when trent dalton and the world of uh literary fiction went were pretty strange to each other and uh I was very touched that you took the time of day, and and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. Who wouldn't want to celebrate the Words and Nerds fabulous podcast?
1: Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny Bean, and today I'm super excited to welcome Matt Nabel, novelist, scriptwriter and actor. He wrote and starred in The Final Winter, an independent Australian film, and appears in Riddick, East, West, 101, Underbelly, Badness and Brothers in Arms, Bikey Wars. He was also in The Dry, alongside Eric Banner. His numerous film roles include The Killer Elite and 33 Postcards. Still is his fourth novel and the first for Hachette Australia. Welcome, Matt, and thank you so much for joining us tonight.
0: Pleasure. Wonderful to be with you,
1: Now, I loved Still, and as soon as I saw this book come out, I actually approached the publisher and said, I need to read this, and hopefully I need to speak to Matt as well because it just looks really riveting. The reviews are really good. So, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't... It doesn't happen very often now that I approach um, publishers that I really needed to for this one. Yeah,
0: so, planet, so thank you. <laughs> can
1: you can you start Matt with, a, with an elevator pitch as to what Still is about?
0: Uh, Still is Still is about. Um, well, it's set in Darwin in 1963, so you know, a, a fair way away from from where we are today and in a different, very different world. Um, but in the same breath, it's not that long ago uh, in the grand scheme of things. It's about Uh, young Constable Ned Potter who stumbles across uh, the body of an Indigenous man and uh, it's his journey um, trying to uncover the murder and how he's being thwarted um, at the same time by people above him both politically and also within his own police force. And then it's juxtaposed with a young protagonist, Charlotte uh, Clark, who's a young you know, newly married housewife in Darwin, and uh, a woman of that era who's uh, quite disillusioned with her life and living in this very still environment, which is a metaphor that comes up for quite a bit within this book. Um, and she harbors and nurses uh, back to healthy young Aboriginal man who's escaped uh, a pretty violent situation. And while Ned is being thwarted, uh, Charlotte harbors this man and their paths in across or intertwine. And it's this young man, Michael Roberts, who Charlotte has looked after, who actually holds the key um, to all those crimes. So, um, you know, I guess it's, you know, I never set out to write a crime novel. It was just something that I was interested in and it fell into that category, I guess, uh, as I kept writing the story. So, uh, but that's the nuts and bolts of what happens and um yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, a dual perspective from both a, a female and a male sort of um, protagonist, so that's that's a pitch, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, it, and it's wonderful. And I, I'm really interested because the book is compared or has been, you know, comparisons have been drawn to The Dry and Scrublands, both crime novels. And what I find really intriguing is that you never started out to write it as a crime novel.
0: No, not at all. Like, I, I just wasn't aware of, you know, the, the other three novels I'd written as well, they weren't genre-based or I guess they were just about people, to be honest, and uh, and so I just wrote this, began writing that in the same vein as the other three. Uh, but I guess because of the plot, it was heavy. This, this story as opposed to the other novels was, I guess, more heavily plot-driven. I, I just didn't – I wasn't aware of – Little, uh, you know, crime fiction, uh, you know, as a specific genre. I mean, I, I don't read it nearly as en- uh, enough, and um, and so I just wasn't aware that it was so specific. And and when uh, you know, publisher read it, and Vanessa from the Shed had read it, she you know, she was very, very quickly to say, you know, this is actually in this very, very popular genre, and I was mm. like, oh. so no, I know I there was absolutely no, um, you know, there's no real ambition and objective to write in that genre just it was a story i ended up telling so i'm very thankful that i did
1: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely and you know you said something there that crime fiction is incredibly popular at the moment i think it always has been but i think it's just had this massive surge and you know i've spoken to a few people about why this is so and you know we sort of come to the conclusion that crime reflects humanity in so many ways not only really plot driven but psychological and then you know we'll talk about setting shortly as well so i think crime even though you didn't set out to write it, it just does so many things. And I think that's what resonates. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, no, I think that people have a real um, desire to to read and explore and actually either, you know, through literature or the other mediums of telling stories, they're very interested in in crime Um, so often because a lot of people are on the right side of the law and they don't experience those things. And so it takes them away to a very, very different place um and within crime you're dealing with you know in the in the construction or the um you know the programming of of crime and it's often filled with danger and intriguing characters and characters that sort of might exist on the peripheral and, and readers may never come into contact with so there's a lot of allure um that falls beneath crime both you know as i said as as uh a reading device, or um, any other—you know—some of the most famous films of all time are in and around crime, TV mm. series in and around crime. Yeah. So people Absolutely. have got a formal, um, desire, and uh, you know, I, I want to to be involved in hearing those stories or reading those stories.
1: Yeah, so it must blow your mind a little bit that there are comparisons drawn to the dry and scrublands. I mean, obviously, fantastic yeah. books created by fantastic novelists. How does that feel?
0: You know, look, it's it's wonderful to to, um, to to be compared to, you know, those books and to those authors. Um, you know, I, it's, uh, yeah, it's very humbling because, like I said, you don't set out to do any of that and, and I certainly don't write to be compared to anyone, but when a book has had that type of recognition of success, then those comparisons certainly don't hurt. So it's very humbling, you know, and Jane Harper's been a really big uh, supporter of mine and so... Um, you know I appeared obviously in her film and yeah. uh, and then she read the book and, and gave us a, a quote so um, yeah it's just really humbling I think it's nice when authors or artists in any any setting you know rally around each other and give support i think that's always helpful
1: yeah absolutely definitely now i do want to go back to setting and context because i find that really interesting and i've read a couple of books set in darwin and i just find darwin is just such a powerful setting Mm. it's the weather it's the atmosphere i mean when i went to darwin myself it's just some kind of magical place yeah can you tell me about darwin and how the setting impacts character plot atmosphere all of those things
0: Look, the, the impetus to write about Darwin was because I had lived there for a short time when I was, uh, you know, as a young man, 18 or 19 I was. So, and, and what struck me about Darwin and what really held a, a great deal of fascination was the atmospheric, just the atmospheric uh, um, tone that, that sat over everything. The, the, the weather was such a big part of everybody's life, whether it was the, the crushing humidity, um, or the threat of storm, the threat of cyclones, you know, it just sat there. And when I was there, it was only 15 years after uh, Tracy had come through. So there was still, it was really fresh in everyone's memory. And uh, a lot of people I'd spoken to had been through that. So there was fear mixed with um, just the, the everyday existence of trying to escape the heat or try to deal with the heat. Um, and so that having that such a stifling uh, blanket uh, to deal with, it just seemed a really good setting to ramp up tension and also, you know, describe something really, really unique that I hadn't written about before, and that was something that I felt if done the right way, then people could really smell, taste, hear, and and. You know, almost sweat beneath um, what I could write about. So I found that really uh, alluring and and something really novel for me as well. So yeah, I think the grittiness and also the frontierish nature of Darwin um, just lent itself to, to something that was, you, you know, you could wrap some tension around and and, and really lean into those atmospheric and um, stifling type of conditions. So. Yeah, it just was something that Darwin was a place that I always wanted to, to write about and and particularly set in the 60s which is a very, very different. I mean, Australia was very different in the 60s, Darwin um, more so than, than most of Australia um, and that it was very, uh, you know, it, it wasn't ambiguous in any way or shape or form the way Darwin was sort of uh, prejudiced. It was a big Indigenous community, we're in the middle of the, you know, in the australia white policy still and, and the stolen generation. So, you know, they were factors as well that, you know, I wanted to explore. And, um, you know, the, and that was more evident in, in the Northern Territory than anywhere else in Australia at that time.
1: And I love what you said about sort of engaging the senses of Darwin because that's what I loved about it, and that's what I've loved about it. all the books I've read set in Darwin. It's just, it's just a different, and it's just a magical place where you can smell everything and feel everything. And I like how you say you can sweat <laughs> while reading the book because you feel that you absolutely yeah, yeah. feel that stifling atmosphere. Well,
0: it's, you know, and it's uh, you want to be able to taste the beer there. You know, obviously. <laughs> Some uh, issues with alcohol, as a lot of people, and uh, particularly young men um, in Australia in that neck of the woods at that time, um, did have as well. So um, you know, it's to escape the heat, beer became drinking was was you know a given. So um, like Tom Keneally, who launched the book, you know, he got up and said, you know, by page two hundred, he had a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, uh, yeah, look, it, it's, yeah, it's it, look, Darwin lends itself to all sorts of um, wonderful things to write about and, like I said, atmospheric tones and, and, and really, really engaging the senses. Uh, it, it's yeah. pretty unique in that way.
1: Mm, it is. It really is. It's got to be one of my favourite settings of books because they're, they're a setting that just always sticks in your mind. I mean, I'm thinking of Peter Goldsworthy's Maestro and that just always yeah. sticks in my mind. You know, I, can, I love that book and I always revisit it. For the place that it was set, it's just kind yeah, of magic. I love
0: it. Absolutely beautiful, yeah.
1: Mm, it is. Now, I do want to revisit 1960, and you said it was a bit of a different time, but I also want to talk about technology in books and crime, because these days, you know, it's a bit tricky writing crime because you can trace everyone, there's CCTV everywhere. Was yeah. this a bit of freedom for you, writing it in a different era?
0: Yeah, look, because I, I, I'd never written a book in this genre before, um, so I was never really uh, bound by any of those tropes because mm-hmm. um, I just hadn't you know, explored or traversed along that type of, um, you know, that narrative. So, um, but the, yeah, it was certainly, you know, like it certainly made things easier when <laughs> you don't have a mobile phone, you don't have the internet and so we were trying to, I, I guess, have a young investigator get on the tail of something that it's got to be really, really hard groundwork instead of just you know, Googling something or uh, tracing someone's phone bill or mobile phone. <laughs> yeah, so I guess in that regard, it was, um, yeah, it was 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 a lot easier. Um, and I don't know if I guess the next book I, you know, decide to, you know, stay in the same genre. Then if I write something contemporary, then I think I I'm, know I'm <laughs> some problems. I, didn't but
1: I just have to always run out of battery or lose their phone yeah, yeah, or yeah. something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> write it in the past.
1: <laughs> Conveniently, battery always dies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's very funny and what were the biggest differences like you said 1960s different but the same what were the biggest differences you found that you had to sort of go back and have a look at 1963 about context and people and character or attitudes and values
0: well look it was just really different you know um like i said there's a big indigenous population in darwin um and there still is to this day and so um those aboriginals were They were in missions, a lot of them, Um, and the Australian white policy was, you know, in broad terms, was the government trying to, you know, to wipe out the pure Indigenous person. So, which is shameful when you consider, Mm -hmm. you know, how long ago in history. But so, you know, the the ideology and and I guess the, uh, you know, the feeling towards those people, was manifest in the fact that we could come up with a policy like that. So people got behind it enough to make it legislation. And, and so at that time of, you know, Australian history and in that type uh, part of our country, um, you know, it was, it was very raw and it was right there. Um, and, and just life was different altogether. You know, there was no, no such thing as political correctness. There was no, standard or higher standard that you were held to when it came to those things or, you know, when you're talking of social inequities or injustices, it was, you know, it was almost every man for himself. Mm. Um, if you weren't, uh, if you were white, um, you were at a distinct advantage. Some will argue that's still the case, but uh, I think we've moved, you know, we've at least progressed a long way, but, um, you yeah, back then it was, it was very different and it gave, um, me some real opportunities to to talk about those things, or discuss those things, or bring some light into those uh, areas that otherwise people might have forgotten, or may not have even read about um, mm. or known about. So um, that was really really interesting, you know, exploring and and traversing through that that time in, uh, of Australian history and what was going on. So um, although the book's not about that, I couldn't write about that era and not cover it. not cover it honestly and uh know, and and with some real you know it's a it's a shameful part of australia's existence there's no doubt about that Um, yeah it's really really like i said in in big terms just historically that's not such a long time ago
1: yeah that's right exactly and and you you know when you talk about that time a lot has changed and we have progressed but then there's still a long way to go
0: yeah most definitely like uh, that's there's a long, long way to go, mm. but like I said, I think we're we're making steps in the right direction, and and that's you know, I think that's a that's a that that feels good. I mean, there's got to be discussions about um, you know the in broader terms the the national anthem, Australia Day, all those types yep. of things. It's uh, mm. it's important for us as a, a nation if we're going to come together and and talk about those things robustly. Yes, I think it's important. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, when those discussions get brought up, you still hear those voices, uh, you know, there's still a lot of voices that I can still taste, um, you know, the overtures of, of prejudice and, and that's mm. a shame. Um,
1: yeah, I totally agree. And, I don't know, I get frustrated because I think, you know, in it's 2021 and you're still hearing those voices and those voices, yeah. they're still very loud and you just think, yes. really? Like,
0: loud and really? loud and veiled in a way that, you know, whoever's behind those voices or, or projecting those voices are, are trying to make a case to say that they're not that um, mm. when, they, when they clearly are. So, you know, look—it's a—it's 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 a, a funny time. It's uh, you know, you have there's not enough talk, I believe, in, in the middle where most people live. Yes, uh, it's become very ideological on the right, and then the left, the far right and the far left, they're, they're, they're places that I consider uh, not only dangerous, but uh, ineffective. Yeah. Um, and I think that for us to move forward and and, and really come together, then, then there's got to be more discussion about um, you know, where, we, where most of us all live so that mm. the people that are outside of that can be helped or they can be... Um, uh, or you can engage in discussion with those people where you have a majority of people looking after each other, um, and, and that's just not happening where you we know, are at the moment um, in political talk. And as far as the spectrum is concerned, I think it's getting, in some regards, we're getting further away, and I think that's a problem.
1: Mm, you make such a good point.
0: No, I think that I think social media has a really, really big. Uh, I think they're a big part to play in pushing that narrative. Um, and I think there are a lot of voices that usually don't have a platform that that, that now do. And, and I think that there's some fear within, uh, you know, higher, there's some, there's some fear within, um, I guess, uh, places where they are in a situation where they can push a narrative or, or, get something out more mainstream. And so, you know, they start cancelling things. Mm -hmm. uh, They decide something's not appropriate. or uh, And we get into a situation where it's just people screaming at each other. And, you know, I think a really good example last year was watching this election unfold in America. And, Mm. uh, you know, if you got your news from Fox or you got your news from CNN, in my opinion, you weren't getting any news at all. You are just getting... One side and then one side, and they were equally as uh, dangerous as the other, in my opinion. You know, like there was nothing that you could find objective, um, you know, objective opinion about. Not to say that the guy who I, th- you know, who was the president and, and was was running again. I mean, I, 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 for the life of me, couldn't wrap my head around. <laughs>
1: yes, I feel your pain.
0: look at the, you know, a person like that just as a. Your characteristic-wise and psychology-wise, that, that he really didn't care about anyone else but himself. So that that was baffling. Um, it was
1: baffling. And it was baffling that the people that followed him, he would not care about them. Oh, yeah. no, no, that's that, that, that was baffling it's, to me.
0: He didn't care about anyone but himself. Mm. I mean, you know, that that's a, you're dealing with a, you know, all sorts of psychology, you know, mm. before you get to his narcissism. I mean, there's you know, I don't think you need to be a clinical psychologist to, to understand that there was a level of levels of, of things that were going on there. So, but again, what was disappointing was that the, you know, you know, the, the, the Republican side of things, they don't, you know, they, they, someone said to me there's a, a difference between those two, two, two parties, Democrats, not the far, far left, but Democrats in general, uh, a little bit more open to um Swing voting, so yep. if something rubbed them up the wrong way and they were sitting just left to centre, they could go across into the right. Whereas Republicans, um, they're much less inclined to do that. And I think that when you have a, a, an outlet that is spruiking or you know, propagating a, a certain ideology or a certain political stance, and they didn't really care... Who they were supporting, as long as they were still in government, I think yeah. that there was a little bit of that going on as well. So, but look, you know, a really interesting time to watch things going on over there. Um, like I said, in the end, it was it was frustrating to just watch those two, you know, networks. Like I said, I, which I found dangerous and both really ineffective and, and not helpful.
1: Mm, I agree. I just remember that being a really noisy time on social media. Oh, it's really oh and now it's quiet it's much
0: yeah, quieter no, you know <laughs> the, 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 um, i'm not on social media i don't have any inclination to ever be on social media <laughs> at all I, I, yeah I, no probably I, the
1: good choice
0: sometimes well i just I, I i don't think it does uh yeah other than connect people i'm not sure what it does you know what I mean? I, it, and look, if you haven't seen anyone in twenty years, I'll probably go to Facebook or Instagram and hook up with them there. Beyond that, I don't have any need for it. Um, it's not my job to sell my book. So I don't <laughs> followers to say, "Look at this," or "Go and see this movie," or it just. And it, look, for me, social media, you know, as as an artist, whether it's being an actor or a, a writer, the less people know about me, the better. You know, I'm mm. much less inclined to make any sort of uh, judgment on me which which could then you know force them to either like or not like something i do i think that it's in an art which is just to stay as quiet as you can and and keep as much to yourself so that your work is just out there and it's and it's looked upon and read upon watched without any sort of prejudice. I That's think.
1: interesting too, I think, as an actor, because you don't want to be, you know, X person actor. You want to be that character, right? And do you think that sometimes when your profile's too high, it loses that essence of character when you're in a film?
0: Yeah, no, there's no doubt. I mean I mean I think we've all been guilty of looking at an actor at some point and just going, oh, I can't stand him or I can't stand her. And then the actual fact you don't know anything about the moment <laughs> been fed and what you're absorbing uh, subconsciously. I don't think that helps at all. So, you know, and I think that there are actors and people in that domain that um, don't have any choice as to how big their profile becomes and and what they can control. Um, And I think that's really unfortunate because I don't think that's a very, very healthy space to be living in. Uh, But I can control that, you know, like I'm at a point where, you know, I'm, I'm... recognisable to a point, and, and I've, got, I've certainly got a, a, a presence as a, as a writer and as an actor, but um, it doesn't serve me or it doesn't serve my work uh, at all to be uh, constantly spruiking or, or or letting people into things about my life that, quite frankly, I, I would am baffled as to why they'd care. <laughs> Who cares if Matt Nabel took a picture and he's eating, look at this, I just cooked a barbecue. I mean...
1: Okay. if it's a delicious barbecue, I might be interested. I
0: don't know, a, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Not, not to say that you know, um, some people connect through that, and, and I've got to be careful about because this is just how it might affect me, and, and yeah, my of course, family. and yeah.
1: this is your experience, yeah.
0: And so, but for people, you know, some people might get a great deal out of it. You know, there are people that are, you know, one of the great epidemics that no one talks about is loneliness. Mm. But, And I don't think this, lockdowns are certainly not helping that. I'm I'm not sure if they're completely avoidable, but um, social media for for people who are in that horrible space, I think is probably important.
1: But Um, it's also interesting too, when you say that, because you can have, like you said, you know, a hundred people think you're great, but none of them know you or love you, you know, so that's still lonely, isn't it?
0: Yeah. That look, I mean, and if you want to subject yourself to that, then that's what you open yourself up to. If you're looking for approval, then you, you, you know you better believe that you're going to cop it on the other side as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that I couldn't care less about that. You know, I mean, that there are people out there that uh, you know, regardless that I don't have much of a, I have no presence on social media, would 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 really not like what I do as an actor, they wouldn't like what I do as a writer. That's okay. I won't lose one moment of sleep thinking of it. I love this. No, but, but help me how? Yeah. You
1: know, they
0: don't know me, but if they don't like what I do as an artist, I don't care. Yeah.
1: You
0: know what I mean? There's enough people that that obviously do because I still get to work. And, and you know, that, that's enough. Um, I mean, I don't look for, you know, my kids don't watch what I do, my wife she might, you know, if it's on, she might watch it. But this, it's not a part of, you know, big part of. Well, it's not the most important. Way, way, it's nowhere near the most important part about how I define myself or, mm-hmm. or who I am or you know what really, really matters. So to have someone, you know, not like what you do as an artist is is fine. I mean, that that's like I said, I, I that that's never been a problem for me, you know, mm-hmm. like and so, yeah, I'm quite happy living with. It. It
1: must give you freedom as an artist, I think, because you're not, you're when you're creating your art, whether that be script writing or writing novels or being an actor, that's not in your head. Your head is about the art and the work and the best job you can do, not what A, B and C are thinking about you.
0: No, it's just counterproductive. And and look, as a, I'm 49. Like, why, why do I care? <laughs> uh, because, and, and and you know, care why and and who is that person anyway? Like <laughs>
1: there's freedom in that isn't it don't you wish you had that maybe you did have that um in your brain when you were 20 i didn't but i wish i did that like who cares look i i I didn't live as a
0: you know a 20 year old in this environment either so you know i don't know how i would have traversed that but obviously you know i was amoebic compared to (laughs) now. but um i just think that you know, the the things you can control, the things you can control and the things that you can't, then you got to let go. And, and like, as an artist and as a writer, you know, you'll get good reviews, you'll get ones that aren't good at all and that's just part of
1: it. It's part of being an artist, it is, isn't it? Because once your work is out there, everything else is beyond your control.
0: No, look, and people mistake... You know, when you're talking about how, what art is, I mean, the definition of art is is really how it makes someone feel, how it mm-hmm. makes you feel. That's how it's defined. Yeah, and, definitely. Um, you know, as a writer or particularly as a writer, if, if I'm, I remember, you know, having a question at a Writers' Festival talking to someone at a Writers' Festival and that person said, you know, I didn't really like your book at all. <laughs> Thank um, you. But I answered by saying, did you finish it? And that person said, yes, I did. And I said, well, I would argue that you didn't dislike it that much, but I would perhaps suggest that you didn't like the way it made you feel. Mm. And they said, that's exactly right. I said, well, then I've done my job. Mm. That that review was as good as a really, really good review because it affected you enough to make you feel a certain way, um, but you still got through it
1: because mm, apathy. apathy would be the worst feeling for someone yeah. to have apathy about
0: your book yeah. right someone to say oh what was it like no it was all right yeah, yeah lukewarm like so <laughs> I mean, there's lots of movies i've seen and books that i've read um that I, I can't say i really enjoyed but i rate them exceptionally highly because of the way they made me feel i mean manchester by the sea is a harrowing watch um i'll never watch it again but a brilliant movie because of the way it made me feel so yeah. you know
1: And you never forget that. They're the things that are imprinted on you. It's the things that make you feel, you know, the the beautiful words I appreciate, of course, but it's the way things make you feel that stick with you and you remember them years later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, you know, like I said, trying to arrive as an artist, I think it's important that you arrive at a point um, where you just become really, really comfortable with, um, you know, having your stuff either read or watched or, or listened to. Um, and, and being as objective as you can with what follows. Mm. Um, if you can't do that, then um, it's going to hurt. Some of those things will hurt. Mm. Yeah. We, all, we, all, we all, as artists, I, I certainly write for other people to read and I certainly act for other people to watch. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say I don't care if people read or, or, or don't. I, I do. Mm, of um,
1: course.
0: But how they feel about those things is not up to me and they're, they're, they're certainly not... Um, you know, opinions that are going to make me change what I do or change how I do things.
1: Mm. Now, being a novelist, scriptwriter and actor, I mean, you know, we talked a lot about art and I really love that of being an artist and, and how you, know, you immerse yourself in your work, but they obviously would overlap and intersect. And I'm wondering, when you're an actor and you're immersing yourself in a particular character, this must help you write character in your books, right?
0: Yeah, look, I think there's certainly a crossover between those two things and I, and I think that... Um, you know the process by which you 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 find a a character as an actor um can sometimes feed into you know um creating a narrative or creating or building a character uh while you write i think while you're writing you have much more i do anyway have much more time to to really get into the minutia of someone uh and what their foibles might be what they you know what they yeah, their flaws are or what their good points are. So you're not bound by, um, you know, as a, as an actor, you're bound a little bit by what's in the dialogue and what's seen. And you can do a lot with, with without dialogue and, and show lots if you get it right. But as a writer, as a novelist, you can really, really explore those things. And it's very literal. And um, you can take your time with those things and really make it quite specific. So Yes, I think it helps, but I think um, writing character is is something that um, probably comes quite naturally, and I think that's just because of my, um, you know, I'm I'm quite um, curious about what lies beneath and what making suppositions of what someone's life might be or uh, what that person might be like. So I indulge myself in doing that. uh, and and it, as like I said, being a uh, being an actor, it's you can certainly go down that path, but um, you don't get to. It, it not not very often does it translate as well.
1: Mm, mm, that's really interesting. And you've worked with some really interesting people. I mean, Eric Banner, Guy Pierce, who I just love and adore. I think he's an incredible actor. Robert De Niro. What do you take away from working with these people shoulder to shoulder as an artist?
0: Look, just trying to learn and and you know. Um, and see how they operate, I think, as an actor, particularly when you're younger, you, you know, you're looking for lessons. Mm-hmm. You know, that I, I certainly was. And then, the, the, you know, the, the longer you do it, the more you sort of settle into what your process is and then you sort of stick to that. But it's always good to observe. Mm-hmm. Um, like I finished uh, today, I've been working with, with, um, with Russell Crowe. Uh, he's directing the film. Um, And so I'm on that. So I've been with Russell all day to day. And that's, it's you know, it's really, really interesting. He's remarkably calm, very detailed, um, uh, really gentle, you know, which is really nice and uh, having a really good time, learning lots. Mm. Um, And I finished a job on Friday, um, which is the first film I've directed. So I was involved in that for 12 weeks. We finished shooting... Friday. And then I jumped onto this job yesterday. So
1: wow, uh,
0: that, you know, directing a film was again, um, something really, really different. And, mm. but, you know, I went in with great humility because that's got on truth of, of where it sat with me. I, I, you know, I said to everyone, I would never pretend to know more than I do. And you surround yourself with people who are <laughs> really, really talented and then you lean on them and, you know, uh,
1: can you tell us anything about the film you're
0: directing? Yeah, no, look, it's a film, uh, Sam Worthington, uh, myself and uh, Phoebe Tonkin. So it's, it's about a, a returned um, soldier and him and his young boy go through some trauma, losing their mother. And um, this guy comes out of the army and he's faced with some really, really... Uh, Hard, hard times. He's emasculated, and he's got you no know, loss of identity. So all these things that really, really trouble these guys who come out of the out of the services, and, um, and it's it's the the reconnection the, or the attempt to reconnect with his son. So, mm. Yeah. Mm. That
1: sounds fantastic. I look forward to it. Now, yeah. Matt, the question that I ask everyone, the last question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast is, why do you write?
0: I write because it's probably where I feel uh, I feel the most comfortable with with who I am outside of being, you know, a, a, a husband or a father or a brother or a friend or a son. You know, those five things are, you know, the relationships that you have, and beyond that, and 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 you know, that's what I am. Those things are what I am. They're the things that matter. But outside that writing is um, where I'm most comfortable in seeing um, who I am. Um, And and that's because it's been within me and a a desire to do this for, you know, since I was a very young boy. So it's also just a great place for me to, to not, not to escape, to to, to feel real comfort in um, a day to day type of existence and, you know, get something out of uh, a day at work while I've been writing. Um, and, it, and it's a joy, like beyond everything, sitting down writing a novel is, I enjoy that more than I act. I enjoy acting. I enjoy that more than, you know, anything I've ever done as a career. So uh, it, it's, yeah, just a big part of how I see myself. And um, like I said, outside of those other things and, and something that I, enjoy immensely i don't have any trouble getting the computer to write never
1: <laughs> you
0: know, when i hear people write as block which might be legitimate um i've been lucky enough never to um to have been cursed with that however you know i've, I've certainly written some rubbish <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, the writing for me is is just is just right it just mm. feels right and it's something that i'll you know, I, I, I couldn't see myself um, doing without it. Uh, it's just a very, very innate vocational type of fit for me.
1: Mm, wonderful. I love that answer. And I love when people really dig deep and, and talk about why they write so it becomes very personal, you know, for you. It's that guess, identity yeah. and, and, yeah. Um, you know, being part of who you are and making you feel the most you, you know, and I love that. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful feeling to have finished. Uh, look, even just finished a really good day. I um, know that that's what you've done, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it is, it's a real sense of self for me.
1: Mm. Wonderful I have loved this chat Matt it's such a privilege to speak to someone so accomplished as yourself an artist of all different types so it's been an absolute privilege to speak to you about this book and to have you talk to me about you know identity and and being an artist and and all those magical things about setting and and the process um, that you undergo so i very grateful that you took the time out to speak to me tonight i loved still i think you're an incredible writer and um you know i feel like better better for reading it so thank you so much
0: oh it's a pleasure daddy thank you very much for having me on
1: Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books, Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.